0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
2: And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one was the first in our series on the Halo, the Halo iconography, which uh, I remember uh, that one was was one of my favorite series we did uh, in the past couple of years. This one originally published on February 25th, 2021. I, I'm excited to be revisiting it, so uh, we, we hope you enjoy as well. <laughs> Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start off with a kind of thought experiment that I think we've actually used on the show before. But we'll use it again because I think it is useful. It's it's the Martian archaeologist thought uh, experiment. Yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, imagine an, – exoarchaeologist from another planet is coming to study the physical remains of human civilizations long after humanity is gone. Who knows what we did? We, we screwed up somehow and there, there are none of us around here anymore, but the physical remains of our cities and, and institutions are still hanging about the earth. I've seen and, enough episodes of Outer Limits to,
0: to, to make a few guesses as to how it could have happened.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the neutron bombs of the Facebook wars, they did the job. Or hey, maybe maybe there's a better option. Maybe we uh, we warped ourselves into the seventeenth dimension and escaped this world. You know, <laughs> not a bad end. So this alien archaeologist is trying to understand lost cultures of humankind through the works of art that they created and preserved. And at some point, she ends up uh, browsing museums. Maybe she's walking through the Louvre and looking at the paintings that were you know were once housed and revered here. And if she were to look over many of the famous paintings of of medieval and Renaissance Europe, she might arrive at a question that would be weird to us, but I think perfectly reasonable to her. And that would be, why did so many of the people considered holy by these artists wear wide-brimmed gold hats or gold wires around their heads? Now, of course, with Enough cultural context. We ourselves know that these are not hats in the paintings. They're, you know, they're not even supposed to represent real physical objects this of course is the artistic convention known today as the halo but i think it's interesting that in a lot of these paintings there might not be anything in the painting that would tell you that in isolation it just looks like people have something that's yellow or gold often circular sometimes square shaped or just like a cloud or a kind of glow or radiance around their head yeah it as we'll discuss it
0: it 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 ranges from something that is very subtle to to sometimes things that are very unavoidable, even where it goes beyond the halo and becomes this all-encompassing nimbus. But... Um but you know, you, you mentioned earlier how the alien might look and say, "Why? Why are these people considered holy? Why do they have the halo?" But I think we'd go even beyond that. Like, why do these other organisms that are represented in these works of art? Why do they they have like they wouldn't know they're 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 holy necessarily? You know, um, they're that's the, true. They're the subject of a painting, but otherwise, you know, what they might not even be able to piece together what this signifies, what it means, why is it there? You know.
2: Why was it that some of these humans, but not others, appeared to have bioluminescence? Like, why yeah. does their hair emit light? You know, did they have a, did they have like chemoluminescence in the keratin of their hair cells or something? And then I think the exoarchaeologists might notice something that a lot of us don't tend to notice when we grow up looking at images of like Jesus and saints and stuff with halos. Uh, and that would be the similarity of the iconography here the glow or the or the gold circle or disk uh, around the heads of, of saints and and gods in a christian context the similarity of that to depictions of gods from other religions uh, religions that still exist in the world today or the religions of ages past Absolutely, you can easily start looking at these halos and things like halos,
0: and you could just go crazy with a conspiracy theory uh, connection board, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's easy to do, even if you're not prone to uh, conspiracy thinking. You could think like, oh well, look well, clearly they're all describing the same thing: either the same mysterious light source that it is forbidden to uh, to represent in art that is always positioned directly behind a person, or this the same like alien discs that we're interacting with ancient people's, or, uh-huh. you know, you could also go uh, and, and, and use it to prop up various theories, such as, say, the, you know, the bicameral mind hypothesis, <laughs> things like <laughs> right. that, you know, uh, which I, I think uh, actually will probably uh, come to people's minds a lot as
2: we roll through this episode in particular. Oh, yeah, there will be some very specific uh, and interesting connections there. Uh, but anyway, so to come back to the idea of, you know, what we do know about the halo, the fact that it's an artistic convention. This is one of these subjects that I really love because it's something that I've seen and just taken for granted my entire life without ever Mm -hmm. stopping to wonder where it comes from, what it means, and how it connects to history and religion and science. So for the next couple of episodes, we wanted to take a look at the halo from a bunch of different angles and see what kind of sense we can make of it. Now, that opening question I asked of imagining an alien archaeologist uh, looking at these depictions in art that weren't supposed to be physical golden hats but could have been mistaken for such, uh, this actually connects to an episode of The Artifacts that I did back in January about ancient Egyptian head cones. If you want to get the full story, you can go and listen to that episode. Uh, but the short and simplified version goes like this. A lot of ancient Egyptian art – Shows people with these weird white cones on top of their heads, you know, maybe about the size of a softball, but cone shaped. And there has long been a debate about what these cones were supposed to represent. Uh, one popular theory is that this is a depiction of a real thing from ancient Egypt, which would have been lumps of unguent or perfumed animal fat, which would melt into the scalp and then perform a kind of ritual purification as as the oils came down over your head, it would be somewhat analogous to the to the kind of anointing with oil rituals that we see in other ancient Near Eastern traditions that you can even find in the Bible. Hmm. But because until recently these cones had only been seen in art and never explicitly given physical grounding – There was always some reason to wonder, well, were these cones maybe not physical objects at all, but symbolic artistic conventions? like halos. Well, a few years back, some physical examples of head cones were actually found in some graves in Egypt. So we now know that at least some of them were physical objects, though a lot of questions still remain about about these head cones. But the analogy to halos really got the gears turning in my brain and got me wondering about halos themselves.
0: Yeah, it's it's ultimately a fascinating subject. Again, I'm in the same boat. Like I grew up seeing all these images of halos to the point where halos didn't even feel suitably weird or even majestic. Uh, and I think part of that is, the part of that comes from uh angel costumes and cartoon depictions of angel costumes, where even someone like uh, Tom and Jerry will have some sort of a halo above their head made out of maybe like foiled cardboard, and it is mm-hmm. visibly held in place by some sort of wire that goes down to the, the, the back of their neck.
2: You know what I'm talking about? Oh, exactly. Yeah. The domestication of this imagery really kind of takes the awe-inspiring element out of it. Yeah, it ends up making it look kind of stupid,
0: you know, Uh (laughs) Um, and um, and and I I think you also see some of that in the actual tradition of the halo with the sort of eventually falling out of favor, except in places where it was really firmly established. Um, But uh, but of course, like we said already, you'll see so many different versions of the halo, even in. you know, Western art depicting Christian saints and important holy individuals. Uh, the one that I ran across that I really liked was uh, Caravaggio's The Madonna di Loreto, uh, more or at least a detail from that. Um, and it's such a faint halo. You could easily you could easily miss it, perhaps. Uh, but it but it also really stands out at you because it uh, the, the lines in it run counter to the vertical lines behind her.
2: Yeah, and I like that in Carvaccio's art because the it, it suggests that, in a way, holiness is something that is subtle to the human imagination. Maybe mm-hmm. it would be obvious to the heavens, but, you know, here on Earth, it's just the faintest glimmer of a circle. Yeah, You yeah. have to look for it.
0: Yeah, um, you know, um, R. Scott Baker in some of his, uh, his fantasy books, they're – particularly magical individuals who occasionally develop halos around the palms of their hands. And it's not visible all the time, but just at certain moments by certain people. Uh, And I feel like that kind of captured some of the energy that you see in in illustrations such as this. Um, but, But other times you see realizations of the halo in art that are just they look very much like some sort of a physical ring or a physical disc like they have one of the the golden uh records that we send into space situated Mm -hmm. either right above their head or directly behind it
2: yeah i've read that this i think was especially common among like florentine artists of the renaissance who would start depicting the halo almost as if it was a a disc in three-dimensional space that was balanced on the back of the head yeah Uh, One of my favorite saints from art uh, was the subject of some paintings that I saw at the Louvre. It's this guy named Peter of Verona, who is usually Mm -hmm. shown with a machete sticking out of his head. Oh, he sure is, with blood and everything. Yeah, blood. And I I feel like these paintings of Peter of Verona should be the new uh, this is fine meme, uh, (laughs) (laughs) because he really looks like, uh, you know, uh, we're making it work. Um, P- Peter was a 13th century, uh, inquisitor, I think. He was some kind of heresy hunter. I think he preached against the Cathars. Mm-hmm. And the story goes that the Cathars hired an assassin to kill him. And then he got hit in the head with a blade of some kind. Like the, this guy brained him with an axe. And then the, I think according to the story, he wrote out the Apostles' Creed or part of the Apostles' Creed in his own blood as he was dying.
0: He also, in both of these, has uh, the images that you shared with me, he also has a blade piercing his heart. Uh, It looks like he was front-stabbed in one of them and back-stabbed in the other depiction. Yeah. So he, I mean, ultimately, the jump between this and full-blown Clive Barker cinnabite is not that far. (laughs) Oh, man, yes. He's very close to a cinnabite, the machete-head cinnabite. Mm -hmm. Serene face and all. I mean, really, yeah. The, the sign between—I mean, there's there's probably a direct line to be made between his vision of the Cenobites and the depictions of saints suffering, but yet not suffering unholy tortures. Uh, what's medieval Latin for "savior
2: tears"? It's a waste of good suffering.
0: I don't know. I don't have that one. On, okay. uh, on, an easy recall for it for me. Yeah, here
2: But the funny thing is about with Peter, and so in both of these, he's got like a machete or a butcher knife stuck in the, just. In his head, like you know, like the lightning bolt or the arrow uh, party gag headset, mm-hmm. uh, just sticking out of the top of his head, and you're you're so fixated on the weapon, you don't even notice that he's got a faint circle around his head or behind it.
0: Yeah, yeah, there it is the the halo. The and and you know, it's I think it's helpful too to think about to ask yourself, like, what could it be? What is this thing behind the head? You know, the physical plate, a glow, an aura. uh, But also you see various interpretations where you can think of it as the sun itself or the moon, some sort of cosmic entity or perhaps a window, a portal uh, to another realm like all of all of these things uh, you see arise at different times and in interpretations of the halo and things that inspired the halo or seem to have inspired it or just have some just basic connection to it based on similar symbology.
2: Yeah, uh, since there are so many variations on the halo and the related concept of the aureole, I, I think that it's best to think about the halo not as something that has like strict criteria for what counts as a halo, but more a a collection of family resemblances, kind of like the mm-hmm. definition of a game in the Wittgensteinian sense. Yes. Um, you know, it's just like there are a lot of things that you can tell they're all related in some way, but there's no set of criteria that all of them meet. But I think we can at least generally say that a halo is something like an area of light or golden color or some kind of radiant cloud, usually circular, but not always surrounding the head of a holy or revered figure. Uh, It's also sometimes called a nimbus. I think we've mentioned that already. But it is related to and with significant overlap on the concept of an aureole, which is a glow or area of brightness that surrounds a person, especially their head. So I think there's some looseness with the language here. But as best I can tell, a halo usually refers to the disc or ring or light around the head specifically. And the aureole would include halos, but would would also include something like like the full body being surrounded by a glow or a golden shine or or fire.
0: Yeah, and that's A-U-R-E-O-L-E, aureole, not Oreo. Though, in an artistic depiction, you could have an Oreo aureole.
2: Uh, (laughs) It's entirely possible. It's the right shape. Oh, you certainly could. Oh, have you ever noticed that sometimes products in, uh, in TV commercials and in advertisements are given a kind of aureole, like a, a box of cereal will be lit as if there's a light bulb right behind it, so there's a glow yeah. emanating from all the sides?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean,
2: that, that's one of the reasons
0: I started thinking about, you know, what, what are some of these, uh, these, these paintings we see in these images where it looks like there is a light behind the head. You know, mm-hmm. you can easily imagine panning to one side and there is a tripod back there and there's the photographer's light, you know, and then ultimately <laughs> right. that's what we, we do to, to backlit things today. Um, but yeah, you do see, You see things that are like halos and sometimes things that are very much like halos in modern photography. And a lot of it is just by virtue of that sort of positioning we're talking about. Either a light positioned behind the individual just by happenstance because the light's got to go somewhere, or it's some sort of pre-existing symbol or decoration. And uh, I want to draw a specific example here that I've I've been kind of obsessed with the last uh, couple of months, um, in fact, since, the, since the, 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 the most recent presidential election, um, you will see photographs of the U.S. president or presidential candidates, president-elect, et cetera, in which the presidential seal is positioned directly behind the individual's head, sometimes in sharper focus, but other times blurred a bit just by virtue of being behind them in a way that looks a lot like halo iconography.
2: Oh, yeah. So I, I did not know about this before you brought it up. But now that you have mentioned it, or, or since I read that you were writing about this, I, I, I was seeing it all over the place. Yeah. So you can see George W. Bush with a halo, Barack Obama with a halo. Uh it just seems like there's often enough a big circular seal behind their head when they're getting photographed that these things just naturally happen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's because you generally have a backdrop back there. And then Uh that's where the presidential seal is. And the presidential seal is circular. um, And yeah, it ends up looking like a halo. And I I was thinking about this. I'm like, well, this is interesting. But I'm sure some people do not like it. Sure enough, enough, I found a wonderful Associated Press blog post about it from 2015. And this was from Paul Koford the AP's former vice president of media relations. And he points out that the so-called halo issue has been around for a while and that no matter who happens to be president at a given time, people complain about it. Uh, you know, it, 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 because it, you, they can make the charge like, what are you doing? You're taking pictures of this president who I don't like, mm-hmm. and you're making them look like they are anointed by God. Uh, like clearly you have an agenda here in the way that the presidential seal is positioned
2: behind their skull. Well, I I would say whether I like the president or not, I, if somebody if I thought the photographer was doing that on purpose, I wouldn't like it. I mean, I you know. Right, right, yes. But knowing a bit about photography and perspective, I can actually see why this might be something that's difficult to avoid.
0: Yeah, Cole Ford drives home that it's never The intention of a photographer to give the president a holy glow. But according to J. David Akey, AP Washington's then assistant chief of of, uh, the Bureau for Photography, quote, the out of focus presidential seal is simply a tool to celebrate to separate the subject from the background. So he is not speaking in a sea of black. And then he adds that they try to make it clear that it's the seal and it's not some sort of glowing blur. And they've tried different things. They've tried shooting a lot closer, you know, getting like cropping in tighter to the individual's face so nothing is seen around the head. But then if you do that, well, first of all, you just have like a real close tight shot yeah. of somebody's face and you could give me the those president's pores, pores right yeah. <laughs> uh, but then also more to the point you lose any sense of context or sense of location and that's one of the things you're supposed to do as a photographer to is to provide that context and sense of location And then if you do the reverse, like you pan out more, uh, and you Mm -hmm. you try and move that seal around in the background, well, then you risk creating a photo that's not suitable for many uses, such as mobile use. You know, you, you don't want to be, you know, pull up your news app and you're, you're flipping through it. And then you're like, who's that? I don't, I don't know. There's some, some white haired dude there in the background. Oh, it's the president. I had to zoom in like 300% to see it.
2: I think the real solution is that presidents just should not have the presidential seal behind them and instead should have like a big like psychedelic tableau, you know, like the (laughs) like the cover of the uh, of the Jimi Hendrix Axis Bold as Love album.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe so. I mean, basically, one of the things it comes down to is this is a shot. This is a photograph that gets taken a lot every time the the president uh, gives an address or, or what have you. And the typical background just doesn't really give photographers much to work with. And photographers are constantly trying to figure out how to frame things up in a way that is visually appealing. So. At least for now, until they shake things up and get that new mural background you're talking about, the presidential halo is largely unavoidable. Like Mm. you can play around with it yourself, put yourself in the photographer's shoes and try to imagine what your options are there. Like ultimately, the, the halo is kind of the
2: best way to go. Well, maybe we can help you out with that today just by helping you as the viewer reframe your thinking about the halo so that it is not only the the projection of a Christian saint, but in fact is an older and more widespread tradition of showing the radiance around the head or body of an interesting or important figure throughout world mythology.
0: Yeah, yeah. But but I, I will I will say that once you start looking for the halo and identifying the halo, you will see it more and more places. So certainly, listeners, as you encounter photographs of people with unintended halos or even intended halos uh, just by virtue of their environment, uh, send those to us. Share those with us. Uh, go, go to the, the, the discussion module, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's the Facebook group. Share them there. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, bring them on.
0: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
2: Now, one thing we've already touched on is that not all halos or aureoles are circular in nature, but an awful lot of them are. Uh, There's a reason that you couldn't mistake a lot of halos in paintings for being, you know, disc shaped gold hats. So uh, so maybe we should probe the, the circular element here for a minute
0: yeah yeah the halo in its, its most traditional form is of course going to be a, either a pair of concentric circles it's going be or it's going to be a disc or it's just going to be a circle or a hoop of some sort um, And you know part of this is we've always been fascinated by circles because the circle is the shape of the Sun it's the shape of the moon it's the shape of the pupil in our eyeballs you know it's just an irresistible, uh, it's it's a line that goes on forever. I mean, you can you can go on and on like the circle is fascinating in the same way that the triangle and the square are fascinating. We'll never stop, um, uh, you know, finding wonder in these shapes.
2: Yeah. And the fact that there are no perfect circles in nature, but so much of the physical and biological world ends up imperfectly approximating circles and spheres. Mm-hmm. um and then and then it gets even more mysterious and gets into like mathematical mysticism uh once once you have consciousness of geometry because there you get all kinds of ideas you know i think uh the circle has special mystical allure because of its special status among two dimensional shapes like uh, you know, it, it has this relationship to the strange mathematical constant pi, and uh, and the fact that if you try to think about it as a polygon, I guess maybe it's technically not a polygon, but if you were to try to frame it as one, it would have to be a polygon with like an infinite number of sides. <laughs> but the sun, I think, is, is of particular note here, not only because of its circular shape and
0: sort of its its all consuming place in human myth making, but also because of, of what we call solar halos, and that's something we'll get into more in the second episode. Uh, but there are you know recordings of depictions of solar halos dating back to antiquity. Um, in, in particular, the eruption of Mount Etna in uh, 122 and 44 BCE resulted in rainbow-like halos that were observed at that time. Um, I was reading Ancient uh, Meteorological Optics by Richard Stothers in the classical journal from 2009, and he goes into this and includes a list of such observations from roughly 203 BCE on up till 351 CE, in addition to mock suns, uh, which is another optical phenomenon we'll discuss in the next episode. Uh, and, and these have been recorded from as far back as 525 BCE in Egypt, up through
2: Roman observations uh, uh, in 193 CE. So, the observation of of light based discs and rings in space and in the sky, I think could naturally uh suggest some associations between those types of shapes or figures and holiness because of the long standing religious associations with celestial objects, space and the sky.
0: Right. And then on top of that, too, you start thinking about just symbol making and, uh, and the creation of, of lines, the etching of lines into things. And as you begin to juggle different uh, symbols and combining symbols, it's it's inevitable that you would combine the human form with the circle, with the, the sun disk, etc. All
2: right. So we've already mentioned that the halo is a very common uh piece of religious symbolism in Christian art, especially in, like, the, the medieval through the Renaissance period. Um, so, so, how exactly does that happen? How does the halo become a part of how Christians depict their, their god and their saints? So, these only pop up in Christian religious art after the 5th century
0: CE. And before that, it was used to highlight, literally highlight, right, um, important secular people, such as kings and emperors,
2: yeah, uh, there there is a long tradition going back before Christianity in the Greco-Roman world of showing like kings and emperors, I think especially when associated with Apollo or Helios, gods that are gods of the sun or associated with the sun to show these figures with rays of light emanating from their heads, which are very similar to, or in some cases, basically the same as a halo. And so you could get a, a pagan emperor with a halo before any depictions of, say, Jesus with a halo. Yeah, exactly. And
0: as pointed out by Derek uh, Kudzi, uh, citing um, uh, Tavino Perry and uh, Ramsden, I'll discuss them in a minute, in the impact of the symbolism and iconography of the Ankh, Sun Disc, and Wadjet Eye on on modern Western society, saints and other religious figures at this time were just shown as normal humans. Meanwhile,
2: yes, the secular rulers, they were the ones with the halos. So that's funny. You got to imagine like how would that be reversed like if if christians in say the 2nd century in the roman empire were seeing depictions of the, the the perhaps hated roman emperor with a halo how would they end up putting that same kind of imagery on jesus
0: yeah exactly uh so it's it's really fascinating to, to turn that on its on its on its head here at least for like i say modern uh, consideration of the past uh so that um that uh T- perry uh, paper that's J uh Tabinor Perry it was a 1907 paper titled The Nimbus in Eastern Art and despite being a 1907 uh, publication you can you can pull this up in JSTOR J's and it's uh, a short very succinct little piece with some wonderful illustrations and you know this points out and also uh Kutzy was uh, was commenting on this is that while there's certainly an urge to connect halos in the western tradition to the ancient Egyptian use of the sun disk um, they conclude that that although the the halo came from uh the ancient near east it stems seems to stem from mesopotamian and persian use uh
2: that had been appropriated by the greeks and then later by the byzantines okay so if if this tracing of the history is correct it's saying that there are analogies to the halo in ancient egyptian iconography but it looks like the christians got their use from the greeks and romans who in turn got the halo ideas from the ancient cultures that would have occupied present day, like Iraq and Iran,
0: right? Yeah. So the idea is, yeah, the the um, you know the Roman usage of it would have been like, hey, we really like this motif. Let's use it. Let's use it to signify our rulers, mm-hmm. and then eventually it passes on to Christian use. I mean, it's kind of a story of the of just how irresistible a an alarming or um, or captivating image is, or a combination of symbols happens to be. Now, that other piece, E.H. Uh, Romsden, uh, this is a much longer piece. It's a lengthy notice in the same publication, Burlington Magazine from 1941, titled The Halo, A Further Inquiry Into Its Origin. And uh, this one points to the influence of uh, Zoroastrianism on Christianity in general. Uh, which would uh, which would bring with it the uh, Kavarna or the Havarna, uh, which uh, the author here describes as, quote, the great uh, Haverno, the main symbol of royal power, an age-old motif of Iranian art. And so Ramsden draws a connection between these artistic motifs and what was to come in both Christian and Buddhist traditions.
2: Oh, okay.
0: So it's literally a glory or splendor indicating a divine force guiding the individual. Uh, also kind of comes sometimes seen as sort of uh, you know like divine goodwill. Uh, it's a kind of holy spotlight reserved for kings and leaders. And I guess that's something to keep in mind too when we're thinking about this. You think about the role of the divine king in older traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's that's the individual who, you know, the whole system is describing as being the chosen one of God or the gods, etc.
2: Yeah, and so at least for me it's not hard to see how uh halo imagery would have been more thoroughly integrated into Christian artwork in a period after Christianity was made socially acceptable in a widespread way in the, in the Roman Empire say under Constantine and then eventually became the official re- religion of the Roman Empire there you would see a unification of Christianity with the with the state power in the Roman Empire
0: yeah yeah um so it, it's interesting to think about what the the halo does, and especially in later art, about how it, it it signifies that the individual you're looking at is indeed holy, um, and uh, it, it's it's weird when you look at the at the the quality of the art. I guess maybe not the quality of the art, but the the changing detail of the art, the changing lifelike qualities of the art over time, because it would it would seem to me as as someone who's not an expert in these things that once you get into the age of uh, Caravaggio. You know you don 't need the halo to to show you know divine suffering in an individual individual you don 't need that halo to realize that the individual in the painting is divine like there are all these other tools, all these other levers you can pull pull to make it so um, and and yet they're they 're still there mm-hmm. um, I was reading this this wonderful piece, uh, very well written by uh, amelia arena 's Uh, titled Sex, Violence, and Faith, the Art of uh, Caravaggio. And they point out that the halo, along with other symbolic inclusions, were often the only way to recognize any given individual in a painting before Caravaggio and the the traditions before him, uh, that this was a particular saint, etc. They'd be like, oh, well, there's the halo or there's the, uh, you know, they're holding um, uh, you know a particular object
2: or some sort of a grisly uh, sign of their passing, that sort of thing. Right, because the saints wouldn't have been somebody, you know, it wasn't like they had People magazine where you know what the famous figures looked like. You know, there, there were no photographs and you probably never would have seen these people. So there wasn't like one way that a figure looked. You would have to use cues in the painting itself to identify who they were or to identify which of the figures in the painting was the person.
0: Right. And uh, they, Arenas the, the, uh, writes that in the, the older tradition, you know, a lot of these people – with the halos or other symbols, they were basically interchangeable looking because they just looked like other rich people of the time. Yeah. And then by the time Caravaggio is coming along, he's making them look more and more like like actual people. And this is interesting too, though, because you, you, know, you, you hear about the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff on various famous paintings, and you learn that, oh, well, this person that's portraying Jesus or whoever, that was just some strapping lad from in, somewhere around town that mm-hmm. came in to pose for some paintings. Right. Uh, so they're still, you know, not... Actual depictions of of you know are, are supposed to you know be actual depictions of the person you know it's not a snapshot of uh, of an historic Jesus or anything uh, but it's somebody that's put there and then you add these other things these other symbols uh, that allow you to um, uh, to gain something from it and I think that gets to into the role the like the long standing role of religious art that you see not only in Christianity but in uh, Hinduism Buddhism etc. and that is the use of the the image to convey often complex uh, theological ideas Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that that may even be difficult to explain with language, things such as the transfiguration of Christ and uh, uh, the the various complex roles and um, and powers of Hindu deities, and uh, and uh, and also meditative practices in um, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, you know, these are all things that are often you know, laboriously baked into the, the the visual image that you're presented with. Even if you're an outsider, you don't necessarily pick up on all of these things.
2: I think a lot of times, one thing that Religious painting tends to do is to inject a kind of visceral passion into stories that are actually told just in in pure linguistic terms in a kind of spare way. Mm-hmm. Like reading the text of the crucifixion narrative in the Gospel of Mark is going to ask you to sort of do a lot of work of like reading, you know, uh, passionate imagery into it. It's actually a rather lean narrative, but you can do a painting of it that's mm-hmm. just full of pathos and anguish and uh, and and showing the full suffering that the artist wanted to, to depict. Yeah, absolutely. Now I guess it's time to get into some interesting examples of other religious and artistic traditions around the world uh, that show something that might be considered analogous to the halo or aureole outside of the Christian artistic tradition. Um, One of the oldest analogs to the image of the halo that that I came across might be something that is found in ancient Mesopotamian mythology. So I wanna start off with a, a specific example From the many stories of Gilgamesh. Now, in the the Gilgamesh narratives, there is a recurring theme where Gilgamesh and his, uh, his friend or his servant Enkidu have to travel to the dreaded cedar forest to slay a monstrous giant called Huwawa or Humbaba. Who is the terrifying guardian of the woods, whose roar is as a flood, whose mouth is fire, and whose breath is death itself. One version of the story I was looking at included a line that was something like, uh, Huwawa, like a man-eating lion, he does not wipe the blood from his slaver." <laughs> like now, in that. some some uh,
0: uh, interpretations of this, uh, right? Enkidu is kind of a beast man himself, right?
2: Yes, I think so. Now, uh, I'm not an expert in this. I think in the actual epic of Gilgamesh, which is a later sort of uh, built-out version of this recurring motif, he is. He's I don't kind know of a about... wild man at least, if not a beast man. Oh yeah, he's on the the locusts and honey diet. <laughs> but anyway, there, there are tons of different versions of this story from ancient Mesopotamian poetry and mythology, where Gilgamesh or Gilgamesh and Enkidu have to go kill this monster in the cedar forest. And in many versions of the story found in different ancient texts, Huwawa or Humbaba is said to be surrounded by seven layers of something. Sometimes this something is interpreted as uh, more straightforwardly a type of cloak or armor that protects him. So he's got seven layers of armor, seven cloaks. Other times it is interpreted as Humbaba's seven terrors or even his seven arms auras that inflict a horror a, a supernatural terror on his enemies and in one sumerian version of the early story gilgamesh and huwawa it says that when the warriors neared huwawa the monster's aura sped towards them like a spear
0: oh wow so they're like it's like he's got seven shield tokens that that not only protect him but can be used offensively as well wait what are the shield tokens Oh, I just, you know, in in various board games, you would have tokens for your shield. So it's like seven shields. So like you'd have to combat your way through all seven shields before you could actually hurt the, the
2: creature itself. Yes, it's clear they have some kind of defensive effect. They also have some kind of offensive effect, and it's it's very ambiguous exactly what they are. They're a thing that can be taken on and off, and they protect him, and they are an emanation of supernatural power that is sometimes represented as a kind of light or glow. Mm. And in many versions of the story, what happens is Gilgamesh entices Huwawa to take off and hand over his seven terrors or his seven auras one at a time by offering gifts and flattery in return. So Gilgamesh will come up to him and he'll go to Huwawa and say, no one knows where you live in the mountains. I want to be like you. I want to be one of your kinsmen. Here is a gift of Lapis Lazuli. Hand over your fifth aura. And so then hands over his you know each of one of his seven auras in succession uh, at some point gilgamesh offers one of his sisters to huawa as a concubine at some point he offers him i think uh, some kind of special flower or grain but eventually once all of the auras or terrors are removed Gilgamesh can suddenly beat the monster up. Like in some versions. it says immediately Gilgamesh punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I was reading about the, there's one specific version of this uh, story uh, that involves a great debate about whether to chase after the auras. It seems like the auras like fly off on their own. Uh, I was reading about this in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Babylonian Epic poem and other texts in Akkadian and Sumerian by Andrew George from penguin in 2002. And this example is in what's known as the Iskali tablet. It's a tablet that contains one version of the story supposedly dated to the 18th century BCE. And uh so in this version of the story, Enkidu and Gilgamesh uh, after Hawawa is is defeated, Inkidu uh, says to Gilgamesh, "Hey, don't spare your foe." But Gilgamesh wants to go hunt down Huwawa's auras, like they have somehow gotten away. <laughs> uh, and the, the text here describes them as radiant, numinous powers that Huwawa wears as protection. And Il- Gilgamesh is like, "No, we got to go get them. And Inkidu suggests that they can easily do that later. Instead, we've got to stay here and kill Huwawa, and then after we kill Huwawa, we can go find the auras. And a quote from the tablet in translation, said Enkidu to him, To Gilgamesh, smite Huwawa, the ogre who your gods abhor. Why, my friend, do you show him mercy? Said Gilgamesh to him, to Enkidu, Now, my friend, we must impose our victory. The auras slip away in the thicket. The auras slip away. Their radiance grows dim." Said in hedu to him, to Gilgamesh, my friend, catch a bird and where go its chicks? Let us look for the auras later as the chicks run here and there in the thicket.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I mean, it almost takes on a comical um, uh, uh, air for sure. Yeah. But it also reminds me, just thinking about, I, I mean, I love the idea of thinking about these as sort of as haunted auras that surround him and energy fields, etc., but, of course, I, I'm, I'm going back to our episode. I think it was the the Horned Helm episode that we talked about mm-hmm. the invention of uh, a little bit about the inventions of armor and helmets. And we talked about how the cloak uh, itself is an important um, piece of armor in many uh, older traditions. You know, it was a basic way to protect your body in combat. Um, so perhaps these are just like many different living, animate cloaks that he wore. Uh, and isn't it interesting that even today we have imagined beings with animate cloaks? Like I know, for example, I think uh, I think Doctor Strange has a living cloak that has a mind of its own. And I want to say that Spawn does as well. I'm not an expert on Spawn, but I think there's something about his cloak being alive as well.
2: Oh that's great. Yes, yeah, Spawn, Spawn's got a cape or something. It's like yeah. a big in the movie it's this giant CGI cape that does magic stuff. Yeah. Uh, but so here I guess the idea is that this monster had the 7 Whatever these are, the auras, the terrors, the seven sort of defensive, magical, glowing, full body halo type things, and that he can take them off and put them back on. And when he takes them off after he's defeated, they'll scatter all over the place and you have to go catch them if you want to. uh, I don't know if you want to, I guess, domesticate his halos and put them to your own uses. So I was reading further about this concept of these ancient Mesopotamian auras or or halo-type things in a book called Gods, Demons, and Symbols by uh, Jeremy Black and Anthony Green from the University of Texas Press in 1992 – and, uh, in, so they, they're also talking about the story of Huawa or Humbaba, and they translate the word for, uh, the seven layers as terrifying radiance. And they, they relate this to a broader entry they've got on a couple of concepts from ancient Mesopotamian religion called melam and ni. Uh, These are both Sumerian words. Melam's Akkadian equivalent is Melamu. And Melam refers to a specific type of divine power, while Ni seems to refer to the effect that Melam has upon humans. So if you are walking through the cedar forest, and you hear a rustling in the bushes, and then Huwawa pops out, and you witness his Melam, you will probably be stricken with Ni— and no, I do not know if there is any connection to the Monty Python thing, but I kind of ah. wonder.
0: Yeah, the, the knights that say nee.
2: Yeah. But uh, Black and Green write, quote, The exact connotation of melam is difficult to grasp. It is a brilliant, visible glamour which is exuded by gods, heroes, sometimes by kings, and also by temples of great holiness and by gods' symbols and emblems. While it is in some ways a phenomenon of light, melam is at the same time terrifying, awe-inspiring. Knee can be experienced as a physical creeping of the flesh. Uh, and they say that both Sumerian and Akkadian are rich in words to describe this phenomenon and its effects. So, in keeping with the story we were looking at a minute ago, they say that gods are sometimes said to wear their melam like a garment or like a crown. And they say that like a garment or a crown, the melam can be taken off. You can shed it. And if you kill a god, its melam will vanish or run away. Hmm. They also stress that while the melam is apparently always supernatural, it is not inherently good. Both revered gods and monstrous demons wear the melam alike. It, it seems to be a visual representation of overwhelming supernatural power that is that is uh, imagined as some kind of emanation of light or glow. Fascinating. So, a, a holy or unholy aura. Yeah, and this is one of those things that I, I just feel like, oh, I wish I could know, like, where does this concept come from? Like, does this have some kind of basis in the natural world, or is this pure imagination? Or does it have some basis in, I don't know, quirks of human psychology? I mean, I, I guess we'll get more into sort of natural phenomena and psychology in the second episode. But, but man, yeah, this this gets the gears going, like I said earlier.
0: yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I love that. Even, you know, with, I guess the mystery even makes the, the, these tales resonate even, even more so. Like, if it, were, if it were more clear that we were just talking about a bunch of cloaks, mm-hmm. you know, or just basic cloak uh, metaphors, then uh, it, it wouldn't be as magical.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential?
0: Now, uh, from here, let's let's travel over to ancient Egypt because uh, we mentioned earlier the idea of sun disks, and um, there are several directions to go in when considering the sun disk in ancient Egypt. But the one that probably comes to mind most readily, of course, is the state worship of the sun disk Aten under uh, uh, Minotep the Fourth. This was a basically he he was he decreed that okay we're we're going to put up the, the pantheon. More or less aside, or we're gonna we're gonna instead of focusing on on the pantheon or, or certain individuals in the pantheon of gods, we're just going to worship this glorious sun disk Aten, and um, we could do a whole episode on this because it's such a fascinating mm-hmm. story. Uh, uh, but basically, this was an unpopular move that was re- <laughs> reversed after his death. You know, it's 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 tough to introduce a new god and a new twist on religion and expect everyone else to just. Stay with that change.
2: Yeah. Uh, Now, I know there are some people who claim here that that Amenhotep is in some ways like the inventor of monotheism. I think that might be a little bit uh, oversimplifying the issue. Mm -hmm. It seems from what I recall, I haven't studied this deeply in a while, but it seems like from what I recall the the Aten sun disk that he was revering was sort of like already a figure in Egyptian religion, but now he said like, well, this is now just the only god that we're going to worship, and the other ones are all subordinate to that god.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is this is this is basically my understanding as well. Yeah, there's there's if you're saying that he converted the Egyptians to monotheism, that's. Yeah, that's that's exaggerating a, a bit. But certainly the sun disk in general pops up in various places throughout Egyptian iconography and oftentimes looks similar to what we might think of as a halo today. So uh, just to run through a few key examples that I think illustrate this well. Uh, first of all, there's, uh, there's Nut, the sky goddess, who's sometimes rendered as a giant nude woman arched above the earth. Um, you can look up images of this. It's where, you know, it's like she has, she's kind of in uh cat cow i guess yoga wise uh but she is the vaulted sky above i don't
2: i don't know that yoga pose tell me
0: oh it's you know you're on all fours and you're kind of like you're either like a cat or you're like a cow okay (laughs) you should try it it's great for the spine okay Uh, but um but yeah she's kind of in that position and her arched body is the cosmos like you you're looking up at her belly when you're looking up at the stars uh but sometimes she's seen uh, she's uh, represented as a giant cow with star markings and a sun disk positioned between the cow's horns again oh. she's associated with the sky uh she uh, uh and this also signify according to Geraldine Pinch in Egyptian mythology this signifies her as the sky god lifting up the sun god ray or, or or um or ra And uh, she mentions that this, quote, becomes the insignia of several goddesses. So Re-Arab, the sun god himself, is depicted in various ways as well, including a sun disc with a scarab on it or in it. Uh, But you also see him depicted as, uh, you know, in his uh, hybrid form with the sun disc above his head or on top of his head. Now, to to be clear, you see this with other deities and characters in the Egyptian pantheon as well. A, the symbol of their role or identity is simply stacked atop their head like a hat. Mm. Like they may, like a scorpion is up on your head to signify, <laughs> uh, you know, that your uh, your scorpion like qualities, etc. Um, so again, think about the necessity of delivering information through symbols. There are only so many ways to present the idea of man plus sun equals sun god, right? And it's just here's a man uh, or here's a hybrid of a man and then here's a sun and they are the sun god.
2: When you were talking about uh, the goddess Newt with the representation as the, the, the cow with the sun disc above the head, I was trying to think, is this the same as the imagery I've already seen or is there another ancient Egyptian uh, deity or figure often depicted as a bovine with a with a halo or sun disc over its head. And I think the thing I was thinking about was the Apis bull, which is, uh, I mm. think, somewhat different. So there's another one. Uh, apparently, ancient Egyptian religion has multiple bulls with halos. I mean, in the loose sense of halo, a, a bull with a sun disc between its horns.
0: Well, um, the, I actually have the answer to that. And that is oh. because Apis uh, is the offspring of, of – said to be the offspring of another – Egyptian goddess, and that is Hathor, and she's the golden goddess of childbirth, Um, and she's often depicted as a beautiful woman with a red solar disk positioned above her head between a pair of cow horns, and she's associated with Ra and Rey as well. I think it's kind of complex and, uh, like, it varies. Like, sometimes she's uh, more like uh, the offspring, and other times she's more like a consort, um, et cetera. Or it seemed a little ambiguous uh, when I was reading about it. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, the, the Apis Bull is the offspring of Hathor. Hathor is tied to the sun god. So uh, it, it's, it's like the, the sun disk is there to show that they are aligned or descended from him.
2: Now, if the scholars that you were looking at earlier, uh, if their theory about the history of the halo iconography that led to Christian religion is true... Even though it would sort of make sense to look at the Opus Bull or any of these gods you've been talking about with a sun disc over their head and say, ah, that inspired the the Christian halo symbol, it seems like at least they were arguing that's not the case. Which, if they're correct about that, that would just make it seem like almost a case of cultural convergent evolution, right? Something that just so naturally comes to mind that multiple different cultures have produced very similar imagery,
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, part of it could be I just haven't come across and read... An argument uh, to the contrary, but mm-hmm. yeah it seems like it 's just a situation of different peoples playing with some of the same symbols and doing the obvious things with those symbols because while it, it might seem like this would be a great connection, like it seems like you could put um, Hathor on your conspiracy board and then put um, the Archangel Michael on your sp- on your conspiracy board and just draw a line between the two, mm-hmm. it does not seem as if there's actually a line to be drawn there uh, you know in the actual spread of symbolism and our uh, you know, artistic motifs.
2: It might actually go back more to Humbaba or Huawa right? yeah. or just generally the the Mesopotamian concept. Uh, but I've got another one, another one from the pre-Christian ancient world with some interesting uh, similarities to halo iconography, and this would be the Achaean halo. Could mm. you believe that there is something like a halo in the Iliad? This This got me by surprise as well, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess a lot of people have read this and not necessarily noticed the similarities. Again, you know, th- there are always going to be some differences, but the similarities are interesting. Um So there's one passage in Book 18 of the Iliad that that strikes me as very, very pretty darn halo-ish. Uh, so it comes in Book 18 of the Iliad. The context is... That the great Achaean warrior, Achilles, he learns that his beloved companion, Patroclus, has been killed in battle by the Trojan hero, Hector. And the exact relationship between Achilles and Patroclus has been the subject of enormous debate over the centuries. At the very least, they are supposed to be the closest of friends. Uh, you know, they're brothers in arms, their confidants. Some scholars also believe there's an implication that they're lovers. Uh, That's not stated explicitly, but some really think it's sort of there subtly in the text. Whatever the exact nature of their relationship, they, they care very deeply for one another. And Patroclus is killed in battle. And when Achilles learns that Patroclus has died, he almost literally goes insane with grief. And then that grief turns into rage and a thirst for vengeance. And the Trojans and the Achaeans are in the middle of fighting to claim Patroclus' body from the battlefield. Uh, So the goddess Athena intervenes, and she pours her god power into Achilles so that he can become so frightening that the Trojans will flee in terror, and Patroclus' body can be brought back behind the Achaean lines. And the way this is visually depicted is very interesting. So I want to read from uh, actually from the recent translation of the Iliad by Caroline Alexander, uh, which is very good. Uh, Rachel and I started reading this. We, we haven't made it all the way through yet, but uh, we, we we started reading this and I really like it. So if you're looking to read the Iliad for the, the first time or the 50th, I, I recommend this one. Um, but the passage here goes like this. Achilles' beloved of Zeus arose, and Athena cast the tasseled aegis about his mighty shoulders, she, shining among goddesses, encircled round his head a cloud of gold, and from it blazed bright shining fire— and as when smoke rising from a city reaches the clear high air from a distant land, which enemy men fight round, and they the whole day long are pitted in hateful warfare around their city walls, but with the sun setting, the beacon fires blaze, torch upon torch, and flaring upward, the glare becomes visible to those who live around, in the hope that they might come with ships as allies against destruction. So from Achilles' head, the radiance reached the clear high air. And going away from the wall, he stood at the ditch, Nor did he mix with the Achaeans, for he observed his mother's knowing command, and standing there he shouted, and from the distance Pallas Athena cried out too. Unspeakable was the uproar he incited in the Trojans, as when a clarion voice is heard, when cries the trumpet of life-destroying enemies who surround a city, such then was the clarion voice of Eacides." And when they heard the brazen voice of Iacides, the spirit in each man was thrown in turmoil. The horses with their fine manes wheeled their chariots back, for in their hearts they forebode distress to come. And the charioteers were struck from their senses when they saw the weariless, terrible fire above the head of Peleus's great-hearted son blazing, and this the gleaming-eyed goddess Athena caused to blaze.
0: That's wonderful. I mean, that's the, that's the spotlight of the gods right there. That's uh, the, the light of Athena shining through um, Achilles, through Achilles' brain and through his rage.
2: Yeah, it's 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 amazing. So there's some things in common with the Melam or Melamu, uh, some things in common with what could later be seen in Christian halos. You could say that the radiance here is a phenomenon of light. It's described as blazing like fire, like a beacon of light. Uh, it surrounds the head. It is a god power. It's conferred supernaturally, and it strikes terror in the heart of those who behold it. Wow.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And of course this this especially is one of those examples that you can easily tie into ideas concerning the bicameral mind, you know, the <laughs> idea uh that uh, it's especially in this moment that Achilles is you know completely overcome uh by this uh, uh you know this this inspired rage. Um but but it's but one interesting thing here is you would never no matter how you're looking at Achilles here, you probably would not make the argument that Achilles is in an enlightened state. That he is (laughs) is experiencing enlightenment. Um, And yet that is another way that you see halo or halo-like symbols used in other artistic traditions, particularly in Buddhist traditions.
2: Oh, yeah, because there's a whole class of of halo or aureole type glows that can be found throughout uh, Hindu and Buddhist art.
0: Yeah, in, in Tibetan art, for example, you'll a form of a halo is often used to signify enlightenment and or divinity. You'll see it on the Buddha himself, but also on important monks. And I was reading a, a description of a 12th century Buddha from Kurt Berentz, uh, Tibet and India, Buddhist Traditions and Transformations, 2014 from the Met. Quote, he's, this is just his description of the, this particular work. Quote, he sits on a lotus conveying ideas of purity and perhaps suggesting his radiance in a cosmic realm and his head is encircled by a flaming halo. So Berndt uh, also describes a Buddha statue that in its original form seems to have possessed a halo that was surrounded by branches in reference to the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha first attained enlightenment.
2: Yeah, and I feel like – I'm not certain, but I feel like I've seen depictions of the Buddha surrounded by fire.
0: Yeah, we see this kind of flaming uh, nimbus – in Chinese and also in Islamic traditions as well. Uh, There's also a really neat one in Japanese traditions that's referred to as the Karura Flame. Uh, Karura is uh, essentially like a Japanese Garuda, you know, this uh, bird-like magical holy creature. Um, But uh, the the Karura Flame here is often represented as a kind of traditional halo behind the head, this kind of hoop design, but Mm -hmm. with portions, at least portions of it on fire. Um, And I included an image of you here uh, image of it here for you, Joe. Um, uh, described as the Karura Inko.
2: Yeah, it's almost like a it's like a hoop with a bonfire at each of the cardinal directions on it. Now, if we
0: broaden our definition uh, of, from halo to also things that are more like you know the areolas and even uh, 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 mandorla, uh, which is a kind of halo that emanates from or behind the entire body, you know, kind of in keeping with those uh, those various auras of uh, of the monster we described earlier, of Humbaba. Uh, there are plenty more examples as well. We certainly see this in Christian traditions, but it's also widespread throughout the iconography of India, particularly Buddhist images. And in Hinduism, statues are often depicted with a... Um, uh, Praha mandala placed above the statue, and particularly the head, to indicate hallowed status. And these are often very ornate with animals and decorative designs in them. Uh, sometimes you know, they're often crafted of shining metal with red paint, and they're signifying the object or being here as uh, as something that should be venerated.
2: Now, in looking at images of the Prabha mandala, one thing I really like about them, especially compared to a lot of the, uh, the Christian iconography of the halo, which is often very uh, smooth, it's just kind of a radiance, or it's a, a smooth looking, almost gold metal type disc. The problem mandala is very textured, it's very busy. There's a lot of stuff happening in it. You, you almost get more of the sense of the, the, the complexity and the, the, the almost like, uh, I don't know, like teeming ant like radiance of, uh, of the complexity of the real world. Now,
0: another very, I think, a, a pretty famous rendition of the Praha Mandala that a lot of you've probably seen is uh, when you see uh, statues of the dance of Shiva. There's kind of this, uh, this flaming hoop that is around Shiva. Uh, and it is, um, it's it's less, it's less intricate as this. Like, it's not a big, solid thing. It mm-hmm. is more of a hoop. Uh, but that's probably one that a lot of you've seen before. And
2: I, I believe this is typically referred to as a, as a Nataraja yeah, like a big hoop halo surrounding the entire body with the flames all around. It's almost like, I mean, it's um, (laughs) coming back in the other sense. So we've talked about the way that objects in the natural world, like the sun might cause you to want to frame an image of a God as something that's emanating light or has its head surrounded by a glowing or or gleaming uh, disc. But it, it just occurred to me. Also, I mean, I wonder in what ways could you could you talk about just the practical necessities of framing the subjects of art uh, as having an influence on on these various traditions of, of halos and aureoles and and Prabha mandalas and things like that? Because often these things do serve as a frame; they're like a visual focusing tool. Yeah, certainly they they it, it tells you where to look at, what to focus on. <laughs> I'm looking at a uh, a dance of Shiva within the the Nat, Nataraja that has uh, got a bunch of snakes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, again, it's just so interesting to look at how even within a particular religion or, um, or, or or you know regional tradition, over time you'll see so many different takes on it. Like artists have just always had to. Uh, you know, sort of reinvent. Uh, in this case, the halo uh, or something like a halo. You know, what can I do that that sets it apart, that makes it exciting again, that makes it, uh, uh, you know, convey the the power, the majesty, the you know, the rage or whatever it is, the the uh, the enlightenment, whatever you're trying to convey through the imagery, uh, how to keep uh, that present. That's well put. Um, which which leads me to Mortal Kombat. Um, here's a. <laughs> Just in passing, we mentioned fictional characters earlier. In the latest rendition, there is a goddess character named Cetrion. And you get to change the way your characters look. And one of the things you can do is you change the various halo-like things emanating around her head. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Like, is it going to be rocks? Is it going to be jewels? Is it going to be something, you know, nature-like, stick-like and all? But, uh, you know, ultimately they managed to work a lot of uh, a lot of what we're talking about into that particular character design.
2: Now, in any of those, uh, like, WWE build-a-wrestler games, uh, can, can you build a wrestler with a halo? I bet you could. I don't remember it specifically, but I bet there was some sort of hokey
0: looking halo that you could put on a a character. There's probably been somebody who's wrestled in a, uh, you know, a a goofy angel costume. Now I'm well, you know. Now that I say that, though, I bet there's a luchador that has uh, a halo. There are a lot of uh, luchadors that have, uh, you know, Catholic uh, mm-hmm. imagery tied up in their masks. El Santo so doesn't there's... have a halo, does he? Well, no. not Santo, but there are others. Like you know, there are other Catholic-themed uh, luchadors, and I bet there's one that I'm just not thinking of that like, maybe Mystico or somebody uh, uh, has some sort of halo iconography wrapped up in their design.
2: That's homework for next time. Yeah.
0: To come back and report. (laughs) Yeah. So
2: Lucha fans out there,
0: let me know who I'm forgetting.
2: Okay. Well, I think that's got to wrap it up for part one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been fun and it it lays the the groundwork for the next episode where we'll, I think we'll inevitably touch touch on some more, uh, you know, cultural examples and cultural ideas of Halos. But we'll also get into some of the optics that we teased briefly in this episode. And, of course, in the meantime, we'd love to hear from everybody, uh, you know, what are your favorite examples of halo iconography from art history, from archaeological uh, finds, et cetera, uh, from fiction, you know? Are there, are there particularly, particularly uh, interesting renditions of, of halo imagery that you like? I was always partial to... Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Michael William Kaluta's angel drawings. He would do, uh, he had some very bizarre looking angel drawings that he created with like flaming halos and halos of eyes and, and the like. So uh, I'm sure there's some other great examples out there. So send them our way. In the meantime, as well, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, There you will find core episodes, science and culture, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You'll find listener mails on Mondays. Wednesday, that's the the, the day we
2: bust out our short-form artifact episodes. And Friday, it's Weird House Cinema. That's right. You got to catch them all. Uh, so huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.